All right. Here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. To, science uh, in between. To science in between with Scott and Ollie. And, and this here is we are. Episode 43. And 43. you know, and you know, you know. I, d- I do know. <laughs> We're I back know. in our prime. Yes. You know, that is not for for the years of my life that I've done this with my my family. Every time I get to a year that's a prime number, they just love it. I, I could see that they just love yeah. that, you know. See the lo- especially the kids, and especially yeah. if you do it like in the middle of like a public party or sure. out at a restaurant or something. Like, I think yell, yell it real loud. Dad jokes are a superpower, you know. I think they yeah. are. It's yeah. you know, the ability to tell a dad joke. The problem is you're a super villain. I know, at least to them. Yeah. But, but I'm a superhero to me. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably true of all supervillains. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That'll be the title of this, uh, this episode. <laughs> I'm a superhero uh, to me. <laughs> to me. <laughs> that's and great. a supervillain to everyone else. <laughs> yes. That's right. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure in, you know, Lex Luthor's, you know, world, oh, he's sure. the hero. He's the for hero. Sure. You know, that's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, uh, that's the, um, what's the word i'm looking for um that's the like irony that's it's not the right word but anyway that that's the like core of of all good villains is that they think they're the hero of the story right like like not to a lot to go down this but like like with the avengers like the you know the end game stuff thanos thought he was doing everybody like a you know favor solid yeah like yeah i'm helping everybody out i'm just gonna wipe out half of the universe and yeah you know and think about all the resources you're gonna have now that the people are gone yes that's that's genius he's always thinking he didn't think about the unintended consequences though right the super villains don't usually do that mm -mm, no No, that, I think that's a, a that could be a podcast. Unintended consequences. I, it know? probably is actually. If it's if it's not, it's a great name for one. Yeah, <clears throat> but this is also a great name. Science in between. And what are we yes. talking about today, Scott? We just kind of like today, rambled over. <clears throat> we are talking about some superheroes of educational research. Wow! wow. Look at yeah. that transition. Bravo, my friend. Thank you. And they're not. They. they nobody thinks they're supervillains. Well, there no. probably are people that think they're supervillains, but. But there, you know, we'll we'll discuss that when we get mm. to the the theory wars. That'll be right. our, that'll that'll be like the conclusion, sort sort of yeah. like, sort of like the Avengers Endgame. We got oh we got theory Endgame. wars. Yes, yeah. we have to have like a theme song or something for it. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll teleport in for the episode, and so yeah. we're reading situated learning. Situated. That's what we're we're talking about. Situated that, learning. That's what we're talking about. And yeah. What we're actually talking about, if we read the full title, is situated learning, legitimate peripheral participation. Yeah, it's a mouthful. It's a mouthful, which is why most people don't say that. But it is by Gene Lave and Etienne Venga. Uh, thank you for saying the second uh, name because I always yeah. struggle with that, especially yeah. the first name. I I probably well I I I pronounced it in a sassy way intentionally because I I would have mispronounced it probably if I'd tried to do it seriously. But it is like uh, you know I think it is the German pronunciation, which is that the W is pronounced more like a V, so Venga, Etienne Venga. So um, yeah, so this is a this is a classic in educational scholarship. Uh, yes. And it's, it's like a, like, again, it's a little book. Like this yeah. is like, like a, like 130 pages or something. It is not like, I read it yesterday afternoon. I reread it yesterday afternoon. Yep. And it's probably like the fourth or fifth time that I've read it. Like seriously. Cause yeah. it's like one of those ones where, you know, the, the writing is at times a little heady, but other times it's like completely accessible and they give lots of really good examples of what they're talking about that it's just like it's an easy read it's something that you can you know come back to over and over again and i think one of the brilliant parts about this and i think i might have said it in another episode is that one of the things i get out of this is that every time i read it because of where i am in my life i get different things out of it and so i got things out of this this time that i had not because when i first read this it was probably you know 15 17 years ago yeah. i was like you know maybe in my 10th or 5th, 12th year of teaching or something like that and so you read it before you came back for graduate school uh no that was like what we i had you in class yeah. like 14 15 years ago um yeah i think it might have been more than that yeah, that's right. 2005, 2004 or five. Yeah. So that's about my 13th, 14th year of teaching. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I read it then, you know, I was focused on like how to put the stuff in the practice or thinking about it from, sure. you know, like practitioner op- point of view, right. Operationalizing it. How do I do this? Or how do I, you know, like really focusing on the social natures of participation. Right. And that's really what mm-hmm. the book is about. It's a, it's about like the, how about apprenticeships and, and how apprenticeships, you know, help to enculturate people into practice into their whatever the practice is and they intentionally avoid talking about school right they intend but you just can't help they throw it in in a little bit right they're like hey we're gonna talk about this but we're really not gonna talk about it we're gonna let let others talk about that right and but i mean as as a as an educator i can't read this without thinking about classes and schools Mm -hmm. and teaching and and they you know and and so from when I first read it, I thought about it from that standpoint. But now I'm thinking about it a lot because my role now is working a lot with mentoring new teachers, new, new faculty members to campus. And I really got hung up on the, you know, newcomers and old timers and how newcomers bring new practices to the environments and change through their participation, mm-hmm. through gaining the you know, their ability to participate or learning how to participate, they in in turn change the community itself. And I'm like, oh, that's a really cool thing to think about with yeah. mentoring and mentoring teachers and in, in schools and at universities too. Yeah. So, so but let's take a step back and talk about what this theory is and what yeah. they say and how that um, I just jumped in. I'm sorry. I did, man. You, I you, did. You, you're 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 uh rush right in. That's I know your, that's your thing. But that's okay. Yeah. So, um, so the, I mean, as you said, I mean, one of the things that they explicitly say in the beginning of the book is that their intention was to, what they say is rescue the idea of apprenticeship. Um, and that's on page 29, right? So they're talking about notions of apprenticeship were just sort of, excuse me, we're, we're like a thing in this Institute for Research on Learning. So, so they were, they were, this was at least in part a result again of, of Vygotsky's influence, but also the influence of sociology and, and this idea of starting to think about learners as apprentices was really interesting to a lot of folks. As we said in one of our previous episodes, when we were talking about Brown Collins and do good and their cognitive apprenticeship, even though that's not the title of the article, they talk right. about situated learning too, but, um, but then they say it was evident that no one was certain what the term meant, yeah. right? So they're saying like, okay, everybody's, and this is, this is a classic thing in education, right? Where people like the metaphor and they start using it, but they don't really think about what it means. They're like, oh, that, yeah, that just sounds good. That's a really cool turn of phrase, or I like that way of describing it. Um, and unfortunately, uh, the reality is that communities of practice has had a similar impact in that. In, in many ways, it's had a very deep impact, but it also gets taken up very superficially. People yeah. talk about communities of practice without really understanding what Leif Wenger were talking about and without digging deeply into the way that they were trying to describe what it means for people to, to do social work together, to, to be right. an activity, to try to accomplish things. It became very in vogue to drop communities of practice. In, yeah, it uh, still is. Still yeah. is. Without yeah. like really unpacking it or really thinking about the the history or traditions that are behind, you know, communities of practice. Like there's yeah. like, oh, we're just doing the communities of practice. I'm like, hold on, what, what does that mean? And, and how are you using it? But this is, I think this is the first time in, when I read this, the, uh, that was the first time I encountered that term communities of practice. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if they created the term, but it is like the first place I, uh, I think, I, I think they're credited with creating that. I mean, it's hard in education too, right? It's hard to think right. about what, who created specific terms and unless they, they're very technical, but, and they have a, uh, actually Wenger has a follow-up book, right. He does. Uh, j- just on communities of practice. And then there's a third book he wrote that was about like trying to operationalize that for technical types of like social networks and things right. that, you know, that I think at that point it just got a little bit too, I don't know. Um, I'll, I'll think of the right word without being too yeah. critical. Like the second book is really great. It's really great. And then yeah. the, th- the third book is like, eh. It's like- yeah, well, my understanding, you know, based on a little bit of what I know about the history of these two folks is after they wrote this book and it was very 
popular and important, um, they, they had a bit of a falling out. And so the Etienne Wenger book, um, Wenger book, um, the Communities of Practice book, was written just by him, but I don't think it was, well, I don't know this for sure. So I want to be careful, but, but my sense was that, um, that the plan was that they would do that together. And then he sort of did it on his own. Now he, he spun off and he's a, an interesting dude and you can look him up on the internet. I think, yeah, I'm just gonna say, I think he's still alive, but I, I, I hate saying that about older people because I'm becoming an older person. I don't want people in conversation <laughs> well, think, to be like, I think Scott, I think Scott I'm pretty Mc- sure Scott McDonald's still alive, but I don't know. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't heard anything from him lately, so maybe. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, this book, um, yeah, really is almost like a journal article. It's so short. I mean, it's it's 120 pages, but the pa- the margins on the pages are really big, and the text is, um, you know, it, it. And they have a lot of blank pages. They have a lot of so it's they really sort of stretch this thing into a book length uh, manuscript. So, um, but it's. I mean, it, it is chock full of interesting stuff. And as you say, they don't um, they don't talk about schools or they try to avoid talking right. about schools, particularly they're trying to frame this um, this notion of what is it, what are communities of practice sort of. But really, the book is what does that. What they're trying to get at is this idea of apprenticeship. Right. And they frame it as legitimate peripheral participation, which is why it's in the title. Right. Yeah. So this idea of like. What does it mean to not be the master, which would not be peripheral, um, but to be a legitimate participant, to be able to, to be doing the social activity that we're talking about, whether that's teaching or or whether that's tailoring or midwifery or whatever. They have right. some examples in the middle where they pick up other things. Um, but what what does that mean? How do you how do you construct that as an as a way of thinking about learning. And that's the thing. They are still talking about learning. They're talking about cognitive apprenticeship in, in, uh, they don't say it that way, sure. but, but they're talking about it in that way. And in that they're talking about how do you become an apprentice learner basically? Yeah. And what's, what's cool is they, they sort of, they introduce that concept and they talk about it and they unpack it from like the things that they go legitimate versus illegitimate, right? Peripheral versus central. And they talk about it from that point of view. And then they give you these five examples. And the five examples are that you talked about. One's a midwife, one's about butchers, one's about uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. These are all published sort of ethnographies that they're pulling from various places and various researchers and saying, okay, here's how they talked about this. And here's how it shows or doesn't show like the examples like so i think the the good examples the ones that they think are are really you know strong examples of uh legitimate peripheral participation i think for me the the best ones were the uh the uh mid midshipmen right was that what they called the midwives no 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 the 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 the, uh the navy guys the Midshipmen, the, yeah, that's right. Midshipmen, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. The midshipmen and also the tailors, because yeah, what's cool? Everybody what's, loves the tailors. What, what I think the tailor one is like they, they both involve like some sort of scaffolding, right? To mm-hmm. you know, draw on Vygotsky a little bit. But what's cool is that with the tailor. Um, so they present this whole thing about how tailors uh, get apprenticed into becoming tailors. And so these things are usually long periods of time where they're working with, you know, they uh, like a tailor brings somebody and almost lives with them. Right. For for years. And then they learn uh, the things backwards. Right. So they're so the uh, like the the last thing they learn is how to cut. Right. How to cut fabric. And the first right. things they learn is how to repair like, you know, stitches or repair like um, seams and things like that. So they're learning the process backwards because they want to help, you know, tailors or apprentice tailors understand, okay, this is the final product that we're working on. This is the things, and this is the value of the thing that you're creating. And then the next thing they they do is learn how to like stitch together the pieces that have already been pre-cut by somebody else. And then they learn how to cut. And that's interesting because what, what it shows is like they're slowly becoming more of a participant as they learn more stuff, mm-hmm. right? And the midshipmen, I think, is a really it's, good – It's Sorry, it's quartermasters. Quartermasters. Sorry. Oh, there you go. Yeah. The quartermasters. Sorry. Uh, so the quartermasters, there are like six stations that they have to learn in, in quartermastering. 
And I don't know, is that a word? Um, yeah, it is and now. It is now. And what they do is they learn each one based on how information gets passed across the different roles. So they start with where this information would you know, originate or where it first gets passed. And then the apprentice moves through all six stages until they eventually have where the end of the information goes. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of cool to see how intentional that is and how it is based on teaching them something valuable about the actual practice that they're doing. Right. Yeah. That to me is very cool. Um, whereas I thought like the, the, the butcher, the butchering example was probably the least um, effective apprenticeship because there was a lot of um, infighting and a lot of concerns about somebody else taking their job. So somebody would get on, you know, a job or get on a role like packaging meat and they could spend like five, 10 years packaging meat. And that would just be their thing. They would never leave that because until somebody else lose, like a new apprentice came or until somebody left another station. And so they would never actually see anything besides packaging meat. And so it's it, like a lot of those practices weren't, you know, weren't contributing to more full participation in the practice. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess there, there's another way to interpret it, right? Which is that different communities have different ways of constituting full participation, right? So, so you could argue that what the butchers have is a more differentiated community, right? Where people have very specific roles and you don't cross train, so to speak, right? Like you don't learn the other stuff because that's the way the community has developed. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think they, they show these different communities to try and help us understand the nuance of what apprenticeship means, right? right. And in, in particular, I mean, the reason everybody loves the tailors, I think, is one, it's very concrete um, because everybody knows what tailoring is basically and, and it's physical, um, and it's it's very structured in terms of the way that you are scaffolded in, into this practice, right? Like you're saying, there there's sort of a standard operating procedure. You start with this. The next thing you do is this. The next thing you do is this. And so that that feels really um, normal. I think that normal from a school point of view. I think the interesting thing is that that also is um, is problematic as a way of thinking about apprenticeship in schools, because I think it's one of the reasons we have this highly structured school environment where everybody does the same thing at the same age in the same way. And we were constantly pushing for this sense of standardization. Um, and, and I think that is not awesome. It has done bad things to schools as a community of practice, right. In that, um, you know, kids, kids are not given, uh, it's, it's not a more open, um, dynamic community of practice where they, where people are learning different skills in different ways. Everybody learns the same thing often on the same day in the same way in, in this, at, you know, it's just like that sameness, that standardization, I think is, is actually a, a really bad thing for education. So I think it's, it's interesting to see, the analogs between these communities of practice and um, and the uh, the you know the the way schools operate, even again, even though they don't talk about that, I think it, it's interesting to see the interaction between those two. Yeah, the uh, to me, I think the the one example that when I uh, read it the first time didn't resonate with me as much, but I think after spending you know, time talking about, you know, science talk with, you know, the Lemke uh, book, and then also the, the Brian Brown book is the, is the Alcoholics Anonymous stuff. Cause you know, it's a lot of that um, apprenticeship, which they don't really talk about it as apprenticeship per se, in that they're like learning a practice or learning a trade. They're learning how to talk about their addiction and talk about their al uh, alcoholism. And um, and learning how to talk about that in a way that's therapeutic and and uh, and helps their development. Yeah. And and yeah. and I think that that discourse is is really critical and it's really important. And it's also, you know, how we talk about science. That to me was I was thinking about like not just replacing, you know, I'm an alcoholic with, hey, I'm going to talk about science. Right. But I think that um, they're both learned discourses, right? They're both learned 
Um, and what they're doing is we're, we're, you know, again, enculturing them into the practice of talking about science, whereas, right. you know, the example is in, you know, teaching them how to talk about their alcoholism in a way that's helpful for them and, right. uh, if, and using their stories to help drive that, right, that, so that they're talking about their recovery stories. And I think that, again, is, you know, personalizing that, which is the thing I think that, you know, Brian Brown's book talks a lot about is you helping them, you know, using their, their terminology and using that to tap into it. Right. And so right. personalizing that is a, is a critical part. So I think I, I was getting a little bit more of the interplay of that um, more so that I think the first time I read that I, I'm, I'm not, not that I was dismissive of it, of the alcoholism, the Alcoholics Anonymous uh, story or narrative. It just, it right. was, it was less, it was less resonant at the time. Yeah, well, and I think you know, like you say, I think I think that that one's about discourse, and I think yep. that that's a much harder and more um, implicit learning process, right? Yep. Like you you don't you can and and science that has tried to do that, right? Like claims evidence reasoning and that sort of structuring um, of science language is is a direct attempt to sort of turn discourse into tailoring. Right. By saying that we're going to create this very highly structured process where you have a claim, you have evidence and you have reasoning right. and you start with one and you go to the next one. And, you know, but the problem with that, as we've seen in education in the past is, is that can lead to routinization and it can lead to, you know, it's like John Dewey's characterization of the scientific method, which then became a poster on every sure. wall and or, or the and, five paragraph essay, right? The right, five exactly. paragraph it's like every essay has to have five paragraphs. Right. We have an intro where you give three points and then yep. paragraph two is the first point, paragraph three. And know. each paragraph has a topic statement and an evidence and it has, right. like it's all, yeah. yeah. It's, it, it, you know, that sort of like mechanical routine way of writing as like pervaded schools, right? Yeah. And, and that's an, that's an attempt to, you know, to take this very complex and nuanced practice, right? Which is right. the way that we talk in a disciplinary area and turn it into a heuristic or a routine so that it's easier to teach. And and then not recognizing, and this is both the point of Leif Wenger and the point of Brown, Collins, and Good, not recognizing that by doing that, you've you've disconnected, right? Now, the other people would say you've abstracted and that's good, yeah. but really you've disconnected it from its context and now it has, it has no meaning. It just becomes a routine that you perform um, and not something that's embedded in actual practice. In, yeah. And the way that people actually do stuff. And so right. then when you go out and ask them to do stuff, and in this case, the stuff is like talk about science in meaningful ways about things that they're trying to understand, they're like, wait, I can't do that. Like I can do a claims evidence reasoning. What, what do you want me to do that on? Right. And, you know, it's like, here's my hammer. I'm going around trying to hammer stuff. It's like, well, science doesn't mostly work that way. Like the claims evidence reasoning doesn't come along until you write in a journal article in, in nature. But up until then, there's a whole lot of other stuff that happens. See, I was hopeful you were going to start naming off hammers again. Cause I, that was my favorite part of that episode. If you, was it? Yeah. When, yeah. when you just named off all the hammers. Rubber mallet, you, ball peen yeah. hammer. Right. Like that. Hammer. that. Oh. It's like uh, best in show. <laughs> Peanut, hazelnut, macadamia nut. That's great. All natural pistachio nut. <laughs> Red dyed pistachio nut. Yeah. Anytime you bring it in best of show, that's good oh work. Oh my God. Those, yeah, that... those, uh, those people are geniuses. I'm just putting it out there. Yeah. That, talk about things that bring me joy. That, that, anything those, those guys well, did. I'd say that to the end. This is not the. I know that, that wasn't my thing. I haven't actually seen those movies in years, but I, I can still quote from them because they're so brilliant. Oh my yeah. God. They, they anyway, are. Yeah. Sorry. I'm distracting. I'm distracting. You know, I, I think that reading this, I think I have uh, a, a new uh, design principle. Oh, oh, do you? For I know this for learning spaces. It is. Uh, yeah, uh -huh. absolutely. Because uh, because right. I when I again, like we've read this, you know, so many times, um, it's about the window. The, the window, because they talk, you know, the, the window. Um, this is <laughs> you, you keep repeating the phrase as if it's meaningful, but I know because they talk they talk about that specifically. They use an example later. I think it's like eight, page I, and on mine, it's page 87. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at a digital copy. Yeah. So, um, so on the, uh, you got from Z library, I hope maybe, maybe 
maybe. I, 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 I do have to say that, like, it, I, I was looking into Z Library a little bit, and I don't know if it's all on the up and up, but it's okay. Like, I, I, I used it, maybe. I don't, I don't know if it's on the up and up either. So, I, all right, I, all right. You know, so yeah, we have to put a little asterisk. Fire beware. That. Yeah. Right. So this is on on page eighty seven, um, where they talk Wait, about. Uh, sorry, eighty seven of the P- PDF or eighty seven of the book. Uh this is eighty seven of the PDF. I think. Okay. Let me double. Uh, uh, because that's because they're different, which is a little annoying, but typical of the way this works. Uh, let's see. So it would be for me, that is 92 of the book. Yeah. So maybe. Well, you should be able to see the page number. So this is great radio. I got to say, but you yeah, this be is able to see the page number on the bottom. 87 on the, on the, in the actual book. Yeah, I think so. So it's like a half page that starts neither Becker nor ethnographic studies. Uh, no, I don't know. No. So here's anyway, where it is. Wherever yeah. it is. It's somewhere right. in the book. It's somewhere so, in the book. Search so, for Windows. So, search for, um, so they talk about a window's invisibility is what makes it a window. That is an object through which the world outside becomes visible. Mm-hmm. The very fact, however, that so many things can be seen through it makes the window itself highly visible. That is very salient in a room when compared to, say, a solid wall. And this is the important part. Invisibility of mediating technologies is necessary for allowing focus on and thus supporting visibility of subject matter. Conversely, visibility of the significance of the technology is necessarily necessary for allowing its unproblematic, invisible use. Mm-hmm. So I think... There's a design principle around learning spaces should have a degree of invisibility. Mm. Like, all right. Well, I, I mean, I don't want to brag, but I did write a paper that uh, had invisibility and transparency in the title. That was that was a reference to this. Uh, let's. Uh, I think that's again like one of those times where like you and I are seeing it too close to being the same oh nice but that's great but that's great but i think that there needs to there needs to be something with it because i think this is like thinking a lot about this past year and the pandemic and people being thrust online like students being thrust online and thrown into lms's um as the primary learning space at least for some period of time the the mediating technology was so visible right that it did not allow, it was the solid wall, right? It was the solid wall and not the window. Mm -hmm. It was causing a bear. It was creating a barrier to accessing the subject matter, or it was so, you know, obtrusive. Is that a word? I guess it is Uh, that it, it became the learning how to use the technology became more a barrier to access the content, to access the learning. And so what we want to do as designers of learning spaces is to help it be more of a window than the wall. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting idea. And I think it's interesting, too, to think about that in terms of um, communities of practice and authentic practice, right? Because Mm -hmm. if we think about like, okay, well, how how do people learn how to do stuff? Um, and not in a school-based way, but in a in a you know in a more ordinary, just plain folks sort of way. If we're using Brown Collins to do good, um, right? Almost all of that happens in interactions between people in different contexts, right? Like yeah. you don't you don't do your work. Um, most big companies even now don't do their work through message boards, right? Or email only, right? You have meetings, you, you get online, you have remote conversations even today um, with people. And the reason that we do that, you know, this has been a big point of contention about should we allow people to work from home or not, right? And it's like, well, because, and, and I think we've seen the disadvantage of that, right? Like some of the studies that are saying people are working, you know, I think it was 30 hours more or 30, 30% more in terms of hours than they were. They're getting the same amount of work done, but it's taking them 30% longer to do it. And 18% of that time is out of um, regular work hours. Right. So it's cutting into family life in a much bigger way than it used to. So I think these kinds of, you know, the idea that, oh, all these new environments have no impact on on work is is 
not getting the whole picture, right? To say, oh yeah, everybody can work remotely. It's like, well, maybe, but there are costs to them working remotely. And some of those costs have to do with learning, right? And we've, we certainly see it in schools because in schools, there's a whole different mechanic where kids can sit in front of their, you know, they can turn off their camera, they can turn off their microphone, they can just sit in the room and you don't know what they're doing and how they're participating. Um, and I'm not saying that there isn't some of that even in school, like, you know, you can sit in a chair and stare at the ceiling and not be paying attention to Mr. Dran's awesome lecture on projectile <laughs> motion problems. Um, but, uh, but it's certainly a lot different. So I think, th- I think it is an interesting, um, way to think about how do we design these, these, um, online and remote learning environments to, to be more, um, invisible, right? right. Yeah. Like the, and I think I've, I've, I've thought about it from the, from the standpoint of like chaos, like how chaotic spaces can be and what we want to do is to to sort of reduce i actually i think i wrote a blog post about this about reducing entropy like mm-hmm. that's the one of the goals that we try to do but i i think that's just cleaning up the mess you know and trying to make it more organized mm-hmm. but i think that this gets at it a little bit better is that what we want to do is to use it to in order for the learning space to become a mediating technology to mediate learning rather than just be like a place to dump things that it's got to have a degree of structure that supports invisibility. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a, di- that's a different way of framing it. And yeah. And I just don't know how you communicate. We'll have to unpack that a little bit on how we communicate that design. Like how do you design from that? You know? Yeah, that's a good, it's a good question. And, and as soon as we start talking about it, it starts getting entangled with all the other things. All yeah. the, and, and I know we have that problem, right? When we talked about those before, but I immediately, you know, as I did, when you mentioned it, thought of authentic practice and its relationship between that and authentic practice. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, so yeah. It, um, yeah. Like when I read it, I just was like, I, when I read that, you know, that paragraph on this, I just stopped for a second. And I was like going, yeah, that's one of the pervasive problems that we have right now with people using LMSs and using Zoom and using all these things. I mean, there are motivational factors, but with students, like you talk to teachers and there's like, I can't get my kids to participate. I can't get them to do this. But I wonder how much of it is the the technology as the the, the meeting technologies that we're using and, and how and the barriers that they create. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah. No. That's interesting. Um, yeah, like that. Yeah, I I can see your wheel spinning. I can. Well, see yeah, and I'm I'm looking. You know, I was also looking at the text, and I noticed too that 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 is the quote that you read. I've also underlined in my copy and page one hundred three. So I was like, oh, look at that. Oh, so that's the official page number one hundred three. Yeah, that's the uh, for me in the in the original book. It's on page one hundred three. Yeah, and that's a that is page. the challenge with this is that there's so many editions of this text, right? There's yeah. like it came out in nineteen ninety, and it's like then they have another, and then they have another, and so and then right. each time I think there's a little bit of a there's a different forward or there's a different you know maybe whatever some, it is, uh, yeah. So find yeah. it. It's on one hundred three, possibly or possibly or some other version. I'm looking at the EPUB version on my iPad, so. That's, oh, uh, that that could be it too. Is it yeah. EPUB? Yeah, yeah, because EPUB doesn't keep consistent uh, page numbers, right? Right. So, yeah. Um, well, so I know we're getting maybe t- towards the end here. I want to talk about some other things, but um, but I have this one quote that I love that I just I'm going to read because I think it's it's so awesome. Um, and maybe there's other ones that you want to pull out too. But um, so this is on one twelve. So this is near the end of the book. And they say test taking then becomes a new parasitic practice, the goal of which is to increase the exchange value of learning independently of its use value. Which wow. for me, like there's so much gotta, good stuff there. Like yeah, the- you just gotta sit with that for a second and say, so the reason that we test is is to increase the exchange value of learning, which is to say basically to, to, to quantify it so that we can, we can um, exchange it for something. I'm, my A will get me into a better college, right? Independent of its use value, which is to yeah. say your A that got you into college 
the knowledge that you, the learning that you did to acquire that A is independent of the use value of it, of, of that knowledge that you required, which is to say your A didn't actually, actually tell you whether you'll be any good at using that stuff in, right. in the practice in which it's designed or, or what, what, what it was extracted from, what it was abstracted from, right? You take this knowledge, you abstract it, turn it into a bunch of, of bulleted lists, teach it to kids, and then they get an A on it. And you're like, look at you, you know that stuff. Like, you know the steps of the scientific method. Congratulations, you graduate with an A. And then you go to do science and you're like, well, wait, I, I have to make a hypothesis first. And it's like, right. it's like dude, yeah, <laughs> you got to back it up. And that's not how it goes. No, that is not how it goes. Yeah. So um, I just, you know, and they threw in testing there, which man, testing. Yeah. That, that is just a, poof. That, is, that, is an, that is a parasitic practice. Parasitic I, practice. Yeah. yeah. I hate, I'm calling you out ETS. Testing is a parasitic practice. Yeah. But now, you know, all the schools are test optional. So maybe the SAT is going to go away. Who knows? Well, I mean, I, I will say that the, they might've gotten gone test optional in terms of the SATs, but over these last like three weeks, four weeks, there were so many, like our local oh, schools yeah. were all doing keystones and doing, yeah. you know, all that. And so those are the state tests in PA. So if yeah. you're, you know, one of our listeners from Virginia or wherever, Oregon, Oregon, or big in Wyoming. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't think so. So I have a, I have a quote, um, a section um, that differentiates the the teaching curriculum from the learning curriculum, which I think Mm. that is pretty valuable stuff too, which I think is probably the closest they get to. Well, I mean, they, I think at the, uh, at the second, you know, the fourth and fifth chapters where they operationalize this a lot and talk about it from teaching, you know, mm-hmm. with, without really talking about it from teaching, right? right. They say, uh, this leads us to distinguish between a learning curriculum and a teaching curriculum. And the, so this is on page 82 of the uh, EPUB. Mm-hmm. Uh, a learning curriculum consists of situated opportunities for the improv- improvisational development of new practice. A learning mm-hmm. curriculum is a field of learning resources in everyday practice viewed from the perspective of the learners. Of the learners. Rather than from the perspective of the teachers. And, so, and they go, keep going and talking about. And, the, and so we, I think this, it's one of these student-centered, learner-centered that you can hear that a lot, right? Gets t- tossed around. But it's again, that, you know, what does that mean? Like right. when you like actually dig into the definition of that, um, I think people just assume there's so much of that in education where we just assume that everybody, when we throw out things like advocacy or throw out things like, you know, learner centered or teacher centered, yeah. you know, that what, what that means loses, you know, it's all based on who's hearing it. Oh, well, I know what that means, but yeah. we, we don't have a consistent meaning like communities of practice. Like you said, even right. though there are, there is a, you know, a definition for that, that people have thrown out, like it just has become, you know, so ubiquitous that everyone just thinks it, you throw it out there. People know what you mean. You yeah. Know? And people just nod along. It's like, oh yeah, I get that. And you see that, you know, again, we've talked about this before, but this idea that they, those, that happens in education all the time. Inquiry science was, a, yeah. oh yeah, I do that. I do that. Um, yeah. So I, I have a quote that's related to the one you said that I'm going to build on with. So on, on 115 of my copy, it's, on the one hand, and, and they're talking about learners or legitimate peripheral participants. On the one hand, they need to engage in the existing practice, which has developed over time to understand it, to participate in it, and to become full members of the community in which it exists. On the other hand, they have a stake in its development as they begin to establish their own identity in its future. And I think this is another version of what you're saying, too, that because they say they repeat things as as in different ways, but this idea that like, what does it mean to really have a responsive classroom? Well, responsive classroom, the students have a stake in the development because they're, they're establishing their own identity. And, and so if you don't have a classroom that provides those kinds of opportunities, then you don't have a community of practice. You have something else, yeah. um, or you have a weird version of a community of practice where the, there is no legitimate participation. Um, where, where there's only the only masters and, and, um, people just sort of pass through. So students become not participants in the community, but become widgets. They become the suit that the tailors are making rather than, than the apprentice that's helping the, the, the tailor make the suit. Right. And what's interesting is that's an area of the book that we haven't really talked about is, is identity, right? We, Mm -hmm. 
and it, it is a pretty big part of the the text in terms of you know talking about the identity development of the learner mm -hmm. um and and how it changes over time and certainly that was a big part of when i worked on my dissertation like identity was a huge part of that mm -hmm. in terms of you know i focused on these new teachers who were you know trying to incorporate reform based practices in their teaching and then how that the identity of uh, shifted as they we're working in schools. Um, yeah. So we, we haven't really touched on that at all uh, with the, with the identity piece here. No. And that's a big thing to unpack. And I don't know if we're going to do that today or not, but, um, but I don't think we have becomes... the, we don't have the time to yeah. today, but we can, we can put a pin in it and talk about it maybe next week. Yeah. You know? And I, and I think it's, um, you know, it becomes, it still is today a big, um, you know, topic of interest in, in educational scholarship, yeah. um, which is this, this idea of like, what is a science identity? What does it mean to have a, a to be a, to have a STEM identity? And, you know, like April Lumen, our mutual friend and I'm yeah. sure friend of the show, um, like she does, she does that kind of research right around, yep. uh, around teacher identity development. And, um, and I think, yeah, I think it is an interesting question. Um, but yeah, I think it's probably too big for us today. Yeah, that, we could absolutely spend a whole episode talking about identity development for students and for teachers and all that, you know, right. and that's another one of those things where I think when you, you know, use the term teacher identity or, you know, or identity in general, it really comes down to who's listening, you know, mm -hmm. and I think about like, uh, one of my first, you were in that room, one of my first professional presentations at a conference, I talked about identity and I was sharing some of the work that I'd done with, uh, my dissertation and someone just attacked me because mm -hmm. I wasn't, you know, sharing their, you know, perspective on, on identity and identity development because yep. they had a very different perspective than I did. And, yep. and maybe, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I felt attacked. I don't know. Yeah. You I don't think the... it was attacked, but, but it certainly was, um, it was not a gracious and collegial interaction around a different point of view. Right. I think that's probably way. that's probably a better way to put it. Well, it wasn't. It might yeah. have been an attack, but I've seen. I'll, I've, I will I've tell seen you some attacks in my day, but yeah, that that was yeah. But it, it felt was, that way. Mm -hmm. yeah. I can, uh, I can still dig up those emotions. Yeah. Give me a second here. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I feel better now. There yeah. you go. All right. So I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna mention one more quote here, um, which is on page 109, and it's related to to what we've been talking about too. Well, I guess it's all related, but this idea of identity. Um, but for newcomers, then the purpose is not to learn from talk as a substitute for legitimate peripheral participation. It is to learn to talk uh -huh. as a key to legitimate peripheral participation. So this is, you know, you know, we keep referring to this, but Brian, Brian, you can see the echoes of this in Brian Brown's work, right? Yeah. I mean, this idea that it, you can't learn from talk, you have to learn to talk. And, and learning to talk is not simple, especially if, um, if you're coming from a community whose core discourse is different than the core discourse that was the foundation of science, right? This is Brian's point. It's yeah. like science was built almost exclusively by white men. And if that is not your, your cultural background, then learning to talk is a much bigger challenge um, than it is if you're, if you are from that group. Right. So, um, and that challenge is real and it has an impact on your ability to learn, whether you're thinking about learning as some memorization of a bunch of terms or whether you see learning as Leif Wenger do as participation in a community, like you, you are, it is much harder to be recognized, you know, going back to this identity thing, recognized as a member of the science community. Um, if the way that you talk is not the way that white men basically right. talk, um, what, which is, well, you know, it's interesting is I was just listening to a, a, a podcast. This is a, the slow burn podcast. Oh yeah. And, and the, the, the new, and we, uh, this is a joy from a few weeks ago. I was going to say, I think you mentioned and, it. Yeah. And so what they're doing is they're looking at uh, the, the lead up to the war, the Iraqi war. And mm -hmm. so they, a lot of it hinged on this informants uh, they called curveball and this is this, this latest episode mm -hmm. um and so curveball you know gave all of this great intel to uh some german intelligence uh, officers and whenever american intelligence officers looked at it they were like this is all made up 
they were looking at it because they were looking at this is not how somebody who was in this role would talk about this. And so they were looking specifically at the discourse as as whether they were legitimate participants or not. And the way yeah, they were right. they they were the way they were talking about it was clear that this was all stuff that somebody just read off of the internet and was using and so that this curveball, this informant, had their his own sort of like motivations for trying to fool the because he was trying to get access. He was trying yeah. to get um be allowed into Germany and you know get money to be you know uh, a citizens there and all that. And so, but it was all came down to discourse. It all came down to the yeah. discourse patterns and how they talked about the things, which is yeah. really cool. You know, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it reminds me of the. Have you seen Inglorious Bastards? Yes. The, yeah. So that scene where the guy gets caught because of how he he holds up his hand to represent three beers. So he's ordering three beers. Yeah. And he holds up his his fingers like an American would, which is your your three first fingers, like starting yeah. with your index. Whereas the German way of doing three is with your thumb and your first two fingers. And just as a result of that, like the nuance of that discourse practice is what gets that guy caught, right? His German is flawless. Everything right. else is sorry, spoilers for Inglor's Bastards. <laughs> but uh I but, think I think at time the, they had their chance to see this yeah, movie, right? Right. And uh, if you haven't seen it, go see it. But when you get to that scene, know that when he holds up his fingers, that's what gives him away. So yeah. yeah, but discourse, yeah, it's a it's phenomenally powerful and very difficult to capture and articulate and turn into heuristics and and routines, which is, you know, again, I think if if we if you learn nothing else from Ali and I, learn that, right? <laughs> that that that's that that routinization, that standardization is a thing to be avoided and, and move towards responsiveness and dynamism. And, and that is the direction to move. If you're going to bend in a direction, that is the direction to bend in, right? That is the, that is the direction of justice, right? Is, is to bend in that direction. So, so um, yeah, well, that's a, that's That's a a great, that's a great way of, of uh, wrapping up this conversation because i think that's just really powerful like Hmm. nice work nice work there friend. well all credit to martin luther king that's his uh that's his um you know that's his turn of phrase the bend towards justice but um anyway so joyce do you have a you have a joy i have a quick one all right do your quick one uh japanese breakfast it's a do you know this okay nope japanese breakfast is a uh a pop group um it's well they're a i think if you go to their they are uh an alternative band um actually it's like like, a person alternative it's a person um michelle zahner Mm -hmm. who uh you know she creates music under this japanese breakfast uh title um there's a song be sweet out that's like currently all over like uh i listen to xmu a lot on sirius and uh, it is like on regular play. It's like indie pop, experimental pop. I think is the way it's uh, labeled. If you go to the wiki Wikipedia page, but this be sweet. It's just like so deliciously pop, and but kind of has this like alt nation kind of alternative kind of thing to it. Um, so you you yeah, it's great. It is really just um, happy, you know, just happy. joyful. I, I would sweet. say. Yeah, it's kind of like in that's, I don't know if you listen to St. Vincent or Dua Lipa or anything like that. Yeah, I kind of would put it all, it kind of it fits in that with a little bit more like sugary sweetness to it. You know, it's just great. Nice. It's like, right. it's happy. It's it's a happy. summertime bop, you know? Happy, happy, joy, joy. Yeah, look at you. A little summertime yeah. bop for you, you know? Cool. I like it. Yeah. Nice. Japanese breakfast. Be sweet. Japanese breakfast. Um, so I'm going to recommend something that is uh, emotionally on the entirely opposite end of that spectrum. And I, I even debated whether this is a joy. And I also debated whether you already recommended this. So I'm going to, I'm going to put it out there. And if you've already recommended it, then I'll figure out something else. But um, it, it, And the reason I debate whether it brings me joy is it's a really bleak uh, television show um, or mini. I don't know what you call these things anymore. It's, it's a... A series of video episodes that have been released on HBO Max, and it's called Mayor of Easttown. No, I have not recommended this. No. Okay. So this is Kate Winslet, um, and it is an amazing detective show, um, but it is, um, I I think, 
one of the most unremittingly bleak things I have ever viewed on television. It's it's um, but it's it happens in Pennsylvania. It's intentionally a, a suburb of Philadelphia called East Town. Um, I don't know if it actually exists. I haven't looked it up on Google Maps, but but they refer refer to lots of Philadelphia institutions and places, and so. And we just read an article. Um, uh, my wife and I just read an article about Kate Winslet, who's of course British, um, who plays this woman, Mayor, which is M A R E, not Mayor. Like it's it's a subtle distinction, but um, but I think it's intentional that it sounds like Mayor, um, as in the the political position. Um, but she she worked forever on this Philadelphia accent and she gets a lot of kudos from real Philadelphians for her, for her Philadelphia accent, because they say it's really authentic, but, and I can't, I'm no judge of Philadelphia accent, so I will not judge her Philadelphia accent, but the show is, um, is, I mean, it's about the disappearance of young women in this town. Um, but you know, the whole thing is, is very sad, but I think it characterizes, um, sort of a part of America that, that is very salient right now. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's beautifully acted. It's, it's very emotional. Um, and it's, I, you know, again, I can't say it exactly brings me joy because it's a tough show to watch. Um, but it's, it's really, um, it's really excellently made and beautifully done. So I have to put that on my, my to, to watch list. Yeah, yeah, it's it's good. And, you know, you probably are a better judge of the Philadelphia accent. You're a little geographically closer to that neck of the woods. So you can probably I mean, you're a Pittsburghian. So right. you you probably have a, 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 a take on the Philadelphia accent. Um, but anyway, a- SNL did a skit on that. You should check that out. Go to YouTube and do uh, there's a, a little skit that they did around that accent that you need to check out. So, OK, I will do yeah. that. And All right. Put, well, we can put that in, in show notes too. We will. Yeah, so episode 43 in the bag, in the bag. Look at us. All right. All right. Well, great talking about Laven Wanger today. Great talking yeah. about communities of practice and nice to be here in between. Catch you next time. In between. See you then. Bye. Bye.